Our reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 1. It's verses 1 and 2. These are verses that will be familiar to many of you. I'd invite you to close your eyes even. Try to hear them as if for the first time. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Partway through Terence Malick's amazing and ambitious 2011 film, The Tree of Life, we, the audience, are confronted with an audio-visual meditation on creation. We're bombarded with clip after clip of Malick's own imagination. We're invited behind the camera and into Malick's mind. But we're also invited to feel the essence of creation at the very beginning. Malick's imaginative exercise is all at once simple and overwhelming. It's all curves and lines and movement and boundlessness and darkness and color and waxing and saturation and emptiness and motion and void and light and shapes and contrast and indiscernible and oozing and beauty. This imaginative exercise is beneficial to our exploration of the opening verses of the Christian scriptures. It's beneficial for at least two reasons. The first is that the text I read a moment ago is precisely that, a text. We read it, perhaps listen to it, but it too often sits dead on the page. Many of the ancients weren't afforded such a luxury. The Hebrew people, God's people as we would come to know them, would have been imagining and explaining and exploring what the words of Genesis 1, 1, and 2 meant long before they were ever written down. So because what we have in 2019 is a text, it too often lies dead on the page, killed by familiarity or misuse, laden with controversy and empty of connections to our imagination. Terence Malick's pictures and sounds take a step toward remedying this tragedy. The second reason that this imaginative exercise is beneficial is linked to its place in the entire film, The Tree of Life. Now, for anyone who's seen the film, you will know that it is mind-bending and out of order and difficult to follow, and its purpose and meaning are hard to discern, but I think that that's part of the point of the film. Among other things, the tree of life is an exploration into the purpose and meaning of life. 
An exploration that includes the cosmic universal scope of the origins of everything and the microscopic particular scope of the story of one family in Texas. We need the opening verses of the Bible to be lifted off the page. Allow them to come alive in our imaginations. Embrace their engagement of all of our senses. And we need to see in these opening verses a theological exploration into the purpose and meaning of life. Now, a bit of full disclosure. I grew up in a church environment that was very conservative and often literalistic in its interpretation of Genesis. I'm very familiar with all of the arguments and sometimes the gymnastics that Christians go through to discern what is meant in the opening chapters of the Bible. There are questions of language, of genre, of science, and of theology, among other things. What I have to say this evening will touch on many of these questions, but I'm not going to address all of them directly. I'll pause for you to sigh or groan if that's what you were hoping I might do. My goal instead tonight is something like wonder. Wonder at the beautiful intricacies of these opening lines of Scripture. Wonder at the beauty of creation itself, and ultimately wonder at the beauty of the Creator. Because it seems to me that there is no true wonder that does not become praise and eventually worship. And I think if we see in these opening lines, if we see these opening lines in a new light, if we can reimagine them, we might just be spurred on to worship. The thing is, I don't think these opening verses are trying to communicate to us what happened at the beginning of everything. I've been heavily influenced by a professor of mine, Dr. John Walton, who said this to our, one of my graduates' classes on the subject of creation. He says, the questions for the ancient people regarding creation and origins were not the questions, did God make this? and how, but rather, which God made this, and why. The questions in the minds of the ancients around the question of origins were not, did God make this, and how did God make this, but instead they were asking the questions, which God made this, and why. Reshaping the question of creation in this way takes us out of the realms of science and ontology and instead places us in the realm of theology. I think this text is communicating something profoundly theological and not scientific. Now I understand that asking theological questions of a religious text may seem like an avoidance of one of the great philosophical questions of our time, but permit me this indulgence. The scientific questions we bring to this text are born out of the scientific revolutions and are more at home in our Western philosophical traditions 
of the Enlightenment than in the world of this text. We may be helped here by listening and learning from cultures that sit outside of our philosophical tradition. And what better way to celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day tomorrow than to learn today from a Native American theologian. Dr. George Tinker, who is a member of the Osage Nation, says this, For American Indians, creation is a matter of give and take. It's never merely a matter of explaining or knowing what happened long ago at the beginning of time, but is rather a matter of knowing our rightful place in the world and of living appropriately. Creation is a matter of give and take. I'm still pondering the truth of that statement. My dad, who's a pastor back in Oklahoma, has often said this to me. He says, if someone can just understand the opening verse of Genesis, and the rest of the Bible becomes so much easier to understand. Now, even though my understanding of these opening lines and of the couple of chapters that follow these opening lines is quite different from my dad's understanding, I think he might be right about this. The opening lines of Genesis provide something of the theological framework for the whole rest of the narrative of the Bible. So I want to walk through these two verses, taking time to listen and imagine, to hear things anew. And I want to do it in three parts that make up one statement. God creates out of chaos. God creates out of chaos. Now, this isn't meant to be a rewrite of the opening lines of Genesis. That's not my goal here. But instead, I hope that this is a way for us to understand what's already written in these verses. So let's start with God. To say, let's start with God, almost seems like enough. That's it. Let's start with God, and let's all go home. The foundational framework that is established in these opening verses is the primary distinction between creator and creation. God is God and everything else is not. God is the subject and the central character of this story. In these opening lines, God is instigator. God is former. Fashioner, molder, sculptor, giver. God is the one who breathes and hovers and brings forth and orders and purposes and finally speaks. But even though creator God sits above and outside, wholly other than creation, I'm struck by the nearness and the imminence of God's presence in these opening verses. Darkness was hovering over the surface of the deep. Darkness that seems, to quote a Paradise Hymn song, closer than our skin. 
darkness that feels if we dwell on it for too long, like it would swallow us whole. Darkness that, to quote another Wendell Berry poem, blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. That darkness is matched by the very breath of God that hovers over the waters. Hebrew Bible scholar Robert Alter points out that this verb, hovering, is elsewhere used to describe an eagle hovering over its young, fluttering, an image of nurture and provision. This is a God that while being completely other than anything and everything in the world, draws near like a hovering breath, like a fluttering eagle, like the warmth of a kiss, like a cool ocean breeze, like a settling fog, like the bass at a dance party. This God draws near. Another Hebrew Bible scholar, Walter Brueggemann, puts it like this, God and God's creation are bound together in a distinctive and delicate way. This is the presupposition for everything that follows in the Bible. God and God's creation are bound together by the powerful, gracious movement of God towards that creation. The powerful and gracious movement of God towards that creation. God creates. See, the grammar in, this, in the Hebrew of the opening verse of Genesis is actually a little bit ambiguous. Our familiarity with the language of our English translations often obscures or even prevents the exploration of this ambiguity. On the one hand, our familiar translation implies an absolute and decisive act on the part of God. In the beginning... God created, absolute and decisive. And there's nothing inherently wrong with this translation, but I think the structure of it tends to form an image in the reader's mind of a finished and completed work. God created, then it was done. It was created, never to be created again. We could easily allow such a thought to grow into full-blown deism, where God takes the form of a cosmic watchmaker who puts the cogs and mechanisms and natural laws in place, winds it up, starts the watch running, and leaves it alone. Instead, the Hebrew grammar allows for all of Genesis 1-1 to be read as a dependent clause, when God began to create when God began to create. Either understanding is possible in the grammar of the Hebrew, but with such a reading as when God began to create, creation can be understood as an ongoing work which God has begun and continues. 
To return to the Osage theologian George Tinker, he points out that native traditions of beginning stories, native traditions of beginning stories generally begin with the existence of a world in some primordial or premature state where humans already exist. The world in native traditions begins in the distant past, and native intellectual traditions conceive of the world in a constant creative flux that requires continual participation. A constant creative flux that requires continual participation. Now, you may think that telling a beginning story that doesn't actually start at the beginning, in other words, doesn't start at the moment before anything existed, that that sort of beginning story cannot be reconciled with the biblical story. Hold that thought for just a moment. First, let's focus on this idea of continual creative flux. The Westminster Catechism, which is one of the statements of faith that has been used in uh, Reformed traditions of Protestant Christianity for centuries, the Westminster Catechism confesses that part of God's providence is God's effectual and continual preserving of creaturely life. The creation in relationship to God is wholly reliant upon God for its sustaining. Wholly reliant upon God for its sustaining. And this God that draws near, this God that loves in the very act of creation, invites us into the flux of creativity. Not to be God or to play God, or to lord it over the earth and all that lives in it, but instead to purposefully and respectfully join with all of creation in a chorus of groaning, of pleading, of praying for renewal and restoration. God creates out of chaos. This second verse of the Bible is replete with the imagery of chaos as it was understood in the ancient context in which this text was written. Our English translations often sound something like, the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The idea of creation out of nothing, the idea of creation out of nothing, which is the traditional and classic understanding of creation in material terms, is implicit in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Implicit in that is the idea of creation out of nothing. But explicit in verse 2 is the idea of creation out of chaos. In the ancient world, chaos was the embodiment of evil. Chaos itself was the enemy of good, the enemy of order, the enemy of flourishing. The writer of Genesis, not unlike the other ancient cultures around them, 
imagines and interprets creation as that which God brings forth out of chaos. This creation chaos motif is deeply resonant for me. Not least because it feels like my life is often governed by chaos. I think of times when I was working 60 hours a week while going to school to try to make ends meet. I think of the first couple of years of marriage. I think of relationships with my family. I think of friends who are battling addiction or striving for recovery. All these spheres of life that are constantly bombarded by chaos. We can turn to these opening verses of Genesis to find a God who brings forth order out of chaos, who guides out of chaos into rest. We find in this creation story a God who constructs a home where order and rest and peace reside. Where there is more than enough bounty to sustain creation and for all who live there to flourish. And we find a God who, like a cosmic bouncer, hovers over this home and holds chaos at bay. Walter Brueggemann says this about the opening lines of Genesis. He says, we are so familiar with these texts that we have reduced them to cliches. But we should not miss the bold intellectual effort that is offered here. Nor should we miss the believing passion which informs that intellectual effort. Israel is thinking a new thought. In the use of their faithful imagination, Israel's theologians have articulated a new world in which to live. Some of the theologians in our midst, Danny Brunges, our incredible artists and musicians associated with Paradise Hymns, have released a new single today, in case you haven't heard. They are exercising their faithful imaginations. The song they've released is called God of All Things, and its scope is nothing short of cosmic. The beautiful imagery contained in it flutters back and forth between the material and the immaterial. I've been on the mountain, and I've been in the valley, and you are there. You, God are there. It's both physical and metaphorical. God is present on the mountain and in the valley. Geographically, God's there. But God is also present on our mountains and in our valleys, the high points in our lives and the lowest of lows. Can we imagine creation as this song does, as something more than simple materialistic terms? Can we grasp the security and serenity of creator God creating, sustaining, 
maintaining out of love and grace a world that is under the constant threat of chaos. God creates out of chaos. At the beginning of our confession for this evening, we had a meditative reading of one of Wendell Berry's poems. I want to close this evening with a meditative reading of Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2. I'm going to read it three times. I'm going to pause in between those readings for you to have space to reflect, to imagine, to let your senses be enlightened by the breath of God that hovers over the waters. Listen to Robert Alter's translation of these opening lines of scripture. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters. When God began to create heaven and earth, and the earth then was welter and waste, and darkness over the deep, and God's breath hovering over the waters, God said, let there be light.